What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. This program, not like anything else up and down the dial, it is strictly for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Those of you who have questions about the Catholic faith, trying to get an answer, why why does the church teach this thing when my church doesn't teach that thing? Well, we can answer those questions, and here is our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, you may be a Catholic yourself, uh, but you've got a, a non-Catholic co-worker or somebody that you know uh, from your neighborhood, maybe the next-door neighbor who has a question about the Catholic faith, and you know that this is what the Catholic Church teaches, but you don't know exactly how to explain it to your neighbor. We can help you as well. 833-288-EWTN. Now, if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, the number 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener, Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Look for the comments box. That's where you want to put your question. Jeff will see it. He'll send it to us in the studio, and hopefully we can get it answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent, thank you. Did you uh, did you get around the detour today? Yes, I, I, I took the efficient <laughs> route today. <laughs> There's a whole lot of road construction right here by the network, and, uh, you know, I've taken a few wrong turns myself over the years. And uh, I'm beginning to get acclimated. Good. Very happy to hear that. Here's a letter that we received from Brandon in South Dakota. Brandon says, I'm concerned about why the church altered the scriptural readings for uh, June 9th and June 10th by subtracting and adding what is already extant in the NAB Bible. In the former case, June 9th, Tobit doesn't acknowledge and bless Sarah's mother. It is just pointedly taken from the text. In the latter case, the quote, but better than either is almsgiving accompanied by righteousness is added to the sentence, prayer and fasting are good. So, my question is, why are the Mass readings not consistent with the text of the Bible? And again, that's from Brandon. Okay, thanks. So I can't speak to these particular uh, uh, readings from the lexicon because I don't have it in front of me. So I'd have to look at it and do a comparison. So I'm just shooting from the hip here. Sure. Uh, but th- when when they derive the new lexicon for the, for the liturgy, one of the in- goals was to arrange... Old Testament reading, the Psalter, the Epistle, and the Gospels in a way that they would cohere around a common theme. And okay. the collect, the prayer we pray, the opening prayer at the beginning, is often oriented to that same theme. So mm. sometimes the readings are definitely chosen around uh, thematic elements. Now, the the business about uh, 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 almsgiving and atoning for sin and so forth, that is in Tobit. So they didn't just, it's not like they're pulling stuff out of the air and making it up. They're just 
maybe putting some ellipses in and taking out a few verses to shorten the text. Okay. Another reason, sometimes uh, you'll have a long reading and a short reading, and, and the church will allow uh, the priest in the gospel, for example, to choose between the long reading and the short reading. And my experience, they usually take the long reading, but, I mean, it's understandable to me. Some of those long readings are pretty long. Uh, the important thing is that you're reading from sacred scripture and, and preaching from it and reflecting on it, and uh, arranging the text to fit that purpose doesn't strike me as problematic. Okay. And that would be the, the lectionary, right? Not the lexicon. Did I say lexicon? It's okay. I have meant to say lectionary. I'm, I'm brain in like 50% active right now. I yeah, understand. Thank uh, Brandon, thanks so much for your letter. Here's one now from John. Dr. Anders, why were the apostles going to the temple after the ascension? The book of Acts says they would meet together in the temple area, but break bread in their homes. So were they actually offering the sacrifice of the Mass in the temple? If not, why would they go to the temple and not the synagogue instead? What was the difference? I'd like to be able to sort out how they worshipped as opposed to how Protestant Christians worship today. Thanks, as always, John. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I appreciate the question. So all the evidence that we have is that the earliest circle of disciples continued to be uh, practicing observant Jews while also believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fact, working that out and exactly what the implications were uh, for Christian identity took some decades. And in St. Peter, for example, we know even, even uh, continued for a while to exclude himself from Gentile company when mm. eating. That was something that Jews did. He got in trouble for that in Antioch. Paul let him have it. Um, but uh, but they did continue to practice as Jews. And so uh, temple worship, the offering of sacrifices and so forth, uh, was ongoing, an ongoing uh, part of Judaism and part mm-hmm. of the institution of Judaism, and all Jews would have participated to one extent or another. And they went up there uh, daily for prayer. That was another practice. Now, um, you know, the temple's in Jerusalem, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you, you could attend the synagogue, and if you lived at some distance, you could go to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath. Uh, but synagogue mm. worship is something that is not specifically prescribed in the Law of Moses. <clears throat> the synagogue ah. is an institution that emerges during the exile. It's a way for Jews to connect to their Jewish identity when they don't have access to the temple and to the rites and ceremonies of, uh, of Hebrew religion. Um, and so it's something that grows up alongside it. Now, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Judaism, as we know it today, continued continuously with synagogue worship. But that was an innovation. Very good. John, thanks for your email. And here's one from Cindy. Dr. Anders, in Genesis, when God made creation, he said, it is good, go forth and multiply. So why didn't Adam and Eve have children in paradise? Thanks for your reply, Cindy. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, I think the the point of the narrative of Genesis, or one of the points, is to is to offer a, a narrative explanation of the moral and spiritual predicament of the human race, right? And mm-hmm. and our our relationship to God and to ourselves and our neighbors and to our own um, humanity is one that's vitiated by concupiscence and what we call the wounds of original sin, and uh, and so. Uh, I think, you know, Adam and Eve's progeny are the beginning of the human race, as it were, right, mm, in the yeah. in present condition. And the story, the narrative conveys that, that the children of Adam and Eve, and we are among that number, 
come into the world in this condition that we have and have the toils and sorrows that we face because of the sins of our first parents. Cindy, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we'll be talking with Kathy in San Antonio. Also, Aaron standing by in Nashville. Lines are open for you as well, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're ready now, let's go to those phones and kick it off with Kathy in San Antonio listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Kathy. What's on your mind today? Hi. um, I do a lot of pro-life work here in San Antonio with the San Antonio Coalition for Life. And I have stayed in touch with a lady who chose life for her little girl. Got uh, this is so exciting. Anyway, uh, she invited me to the baptism of her little girl, which was at a Presbyterian church, mm-hmm. and I was thrilled to be there for for that. Um, and the mom asked me um, if I was Catholic, and she said she didn't know what she was. Uh, she believes in Jesus. She believes in the Trinity. Um, and she she asked me if I was Catholic. She wants to have coffee. She wants to learn a little bit about the Catholic faith and is open to that. And now I have a, a coffee schedule for her, and I'm not quite sure what exactly I should say. I want to come across loving. I want to come across not pushy, but I want maybe a resource or two that would be a first resource for someone just learning about the Catholic faith. I think she went to the Presbyterian Church because uh, her her sister, who was the god uh, godmother, that was her church. So I don't think she has a church home, and I, I would love for the Catholic Church to be her home. So if you have any resources or any um, uh, wordings or ways that I might be able to, to speak with her, that'd be great. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, the somebody's inquiring about the Catholic Church and why be Catholic and what is this business called Catholicism, what I would emphasize off the bat is that as Catholics, we think that the Catholic Church is the church that Christ founded. And... You know, the Presbyterian Church came into existence in Scotland, uh, derived from Calvinism, which, of course, was from John Calvin in mm-hmm. Geneva in the 16th century. Uh, you know, Luther's, Lutherans date the founding of their organization to Martin Luther, but the Catholic Church, we don't have a founder other than Jesus. We've been in continuous existence for 2,000 years with Christ as the founder. And that's really the the main point of the Catholic faith, that there's this continuous institution founded by Jesus that has authority all the way back from him when he said to the apostles, make disciples of all all nations, teach them everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. So that's the primary motive. Now, in terms of what Catholics actually believe about God and the moral life and the spiritual life and the point of the Christian faith, another big difference from Presbyterianism is that Catholics think that the point of being Catholic is that the Catholic Church provides you with supernatural resources to change your life, uh, to change your character, and ultimately to become more like Jesus. And, of course, the principal means are the sacraments of the Church that all present the mystery of Christ's life to us in different forms, whether we die and rise with him in baptism or whether we uh, draw closer to him through uh, contrition and receiving absolution through his minister or whether we uh, receive the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion and, and, and both represent and experience this deep interpenetration of Christ's person and my person 
uh, in Holy Communion and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and you know the rest of the sacraments. That, that's really the, 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 the spiritual heart of the Catholic faith, and these things to us are not mere reminders, uh, they're means of actually transforming our inner life and our character. Uh, it's different from Presbyterianism in which, yes, they believe in the transformation of character, but it's not the main point. The main point is this radical free forgiveness where God forgives you for Christ's sake regardless of the quality of your moral life, justification by faith alone. Catholics, no, we think that God forgives us so that we can live holy lives. Uh, and we can merit from the Lord. We can merit eternal reward. We, Jesus says if we give a cup of cold water to a little one uh, that belongs to him, we won't lose our reward. Another important aspect of the Catholic life is the communion of saints. We think that there are individuals who succeeded in that endeavor, who became holy in imitating the life of Jesus. And they are brothers and sisters in the faith, and they pray for us, and they are continuing members of the Church. Even though they've died, they're in glory, uh, they desire the good for us, we imitate their virtues, and we seek their intercession. Uh, the sacraments, the saints, and of course the hierarchical, hierarchical governance, which flows from Christ's institution. These are kind of the main points of Catholicism mm -hmm. that I would want to communicate. In terms of resources, hard to know what to suggest to somebody without knowing where they're coming from, what their educational level is, um, you know, what, what, what media they most want to engage. Mm -hmm. Some of the resources, and I'll just you know, pull these randomly from different different ideas. Uh, number one, honestly, is I'd recommend that she familiarize herself with EWTN uh, radio and television. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fantastic catechetical resource, and we're here every day yep. to answer people's questions about the faith and to try to present the faith compellingly from so many different points of view. You can get theology on EWTN. You can get Christian living on EWTN. You mm -hmm. can get help for your marriage troubles on EWTN. I mean, whatever element of Christian life or experience you're dealing with, yeah. EWTN has got something addressed just to you. You can even get Christian perspective on the news at EWTN. You name it, sure. we're there to, mm -hmm. to help people live the Christian life. Um, uh, a lot of people really uh, have gotten a lot of benefit out of Robert Barron's uh, video series, Catholicism, uh, which is meant to give a really beautiful account of the Catholic faith and history and institutions down through the centuries. Mm -hmm. Those would be audiovisual resources, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. uh, in the book department, um, John Bergsma's book, uh, Bible Study Basics for Catholics, is a, an introduction to how to read the Bible as a Catholic. Um, and, of course, uh, converts, everybody likes Dr. Scott Hahn. Pretty much anything by Dr. Hahn will give you an introduction to some element of Catholic faith and practice and his own conversion story, mm -hmm. Rome Sweet Home. has, of course, uh, yeah. been a big success. So those are some thoughts for you. Uh, Kathy, is that helpful for you? That's very helpful. Thank you so much. And, and I guess uh, the first thing I sent to her was, yes, the Catholic Church founded by Jesus. There <laughs> you go. Three, you know, so hopefully I got her on the right, on yeah. the right track and she wanted to hear more. So we're, we're going to uh, continue to pray that that meeting goes well. Fantastic. Sounds great. Thanks so much for your call, Kathy. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We have two lines open, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. We're about halfway through the month of July. And during this month, we are encouraged to honor the precious blood of Jesus by making an act of love to the precious blood every day of this month. Now you can do so by praying the Chaplet of the Most Precious Blood. It's composed of 33 beads in memory of the 33 years of Jesus' life here on
on Earth. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com. may want to go check that out. All right, let's go now to uh, Aaron, a first-time caller in Nashville, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, guys. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you uh, for your show. It's been a uh, large help in my conversion this year. Great. Um, but my uh, question is, um, so my dad is still a Protestant, and um, he is convinced of almost all Catholic Church teachings, but his main hurdle is why only Catholics can receive Jesus in the Eucharist and not all Christians or people who want to receive him. Yeah, great. I can absolutely answer that question. So, I appreciate it, by the way. So, there are uh, many Christian denominations that look at Holy Communion as a kind of um, sentimental gesture that reminds the Christian that he has he or she has an intimate personal relationship with Jesus. And the point of the thing, the point of communion and the point of the Christian life, according to these groups, <clears throat> is to develop this individual, private, interior, personal relationship with Jesus. I know that he loves me. He knows that I love him. You know, we walk in the Garden of Lo- uh, Alone, as Austin Miles's hymn used to say, you know, and that's, that's, uh, that's the way we roll. And the rest of the Christian life, church services, Bible studies, fellowship, uh, good works, ethical behavior, all that, uh, is a kind of an adornment to this intimate personal relationship. And what really matters is that you have that intimate personal relationship, and the accoutrements of Christian life don't matter all that much. And whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or whatever it might be, you know, if you've really got the stuff, you have that interior relationship, and the rest of the thing is so many different flavors of ice cream. And so to say to somebody, well, you can't receive communion in our church, it was tantamount to telling them that they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And who are you to say that to me, right? I, I have as much of a personal relationship with Jesus as you do. Meh. So there. You know? <laughs> and that's kind of the thought. I mean, who are these Catholics to, to think that they control Jesus this way? I know that I know Christ. And if that's the way you understand communion and you apply that understanding to the Catholic position, you will radically misunderstand what the Catholic Church is trying to communicate. The Catholic Church is not trying to say to you that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. That has nothing to do with our determination, the Church's determination, that, that uh, generally speaking, non-Catholics should not receive communion in the Catholic Church. So let me give you a completely different frame of reference. Catholics believe, first of all, that Christ intends to save the world by founding an institution— that there is a visible institution called the Catholic Church with, with hierarchical government, lines of authority, tradition, uh, courts of law even, mm-hmm, and historical mm-hmm. continuity down through 2,000 years. And it's not that you have to be a Catholic to go to heaven. It's that the Catholic Church is the institution put into the world by Christ to spread the Word of God, Christian living, and the tools uh, for holiness. It, it'd be tantamount to saying, like, look, um, you know, you don't— you don't necessarily have to have the Justice Department, uh, you know, to live justly. I mean, you can, you, could, you, can, you can achieve justice in society, maybe in your own personal relationships, mm. without the U.S. Department of Justice <laughs> and, uh, and the FBI and all the other engines of, you know, the judicial system, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yet, if you want to, what is the thing that the Constitution puts into the country for purposes of administering justice? Well, it's... It's the judicial system, yeah. right? doesn't mean that outside the judicial system there's never any justice, 
I mean, Tom and I could make a just deal. I could buy his car for whatever it's actually worth, and we could exchange it, and that'd be just. Uh, but the system is the Justice Department and the judiciary. In the same way, you could get to heaven without being a member of the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church just is the institution that God put in the world to administer the sacraments and the means of grace and the truth about Christ. And, and so the, the, the most perfect mode of engagement in the Christian life is to live it the way that Jesus set it up, which is in the Catholic Church. Yeah. And the, the, the sacrament of Holy Communion uh, is, among other things, the way we express our communion with that institution— with the body of Christ that is the Catholic Church. And we are not saved, uh, generally speaking, as isolated individuals through a personal, subjective relationship with Jesus. We're saved as members of a corporate body, right? And, uh, and th- there's a reason for that. It's not, it's not arbitrary that God did it that way, because the mode of Christian life being charity requires us, and this is essential to Christian identity, that we show charity to people who are different than we are. St. Augustine once said that Christ gave us the church so we would have people to do good to. Catholic means universal. And, you know, mm. what was it? Um, um, was it um, um, Dubliners, Phil, uh, Finnegan's Wake, um, James Joyce. James Joyce. Oh, here, sure. Here comes everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, about the Catholic Church, you know? You become Catholic and you suddenly you're thrown in, you're throwing your lot in with all these different people who look and smell differently than you do, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you have to express that solidarity with this universal body, and the way we do that sacramentally is through Holy Communion. So taking communion in the Catholic Church is, is your way of affirming this is the community in which I belong. I belong to these people spread across the world with all their different languages and ethnicities and mm-hmm. cuisines and all the rest of it. Um, and so why would you want to profess something that you don't actually think, right? The, the Protestant evangelical who goes to communion means something different by it than what the Catholic means. And the Catholic means, among other things, this is the institution that Christ founded— in which I, he wants for me to be saved, my act of communion here means my solidarity with this communion, with all the hierarchy and the government and the rules and all the rest of it. And so you're testifying against yourself. It's really kind of performative contradiction for an evangelical Protestant or some Protestant to receive communion in the Catholic Church if he doesn't actually believe that. Sure. Right. Another reason that we think that non-Catholics shouldn't go to communion in the Catholic Church is that um, we don't think that the point of uh, Christian worship is simply a kind of sentimental reminiscence about how much God loves me. Rather, the central act of worship is to offer sacrifice. Uh, that's a biblical teaching. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests who offered sacrifice had to be ritually pure. They had to take baths and wash themselves and wear certain kinds of clothing. Jesus went to great pains to suggest that that's not the kind of purity that ultimately matters. There is a purity of heart that matters. St. Paul says, uh, pl- Purify yourself from everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. And the sacrifice that we offer is not the sacrifice of goats and bulls. It is the sacrifice of Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, which become present for us on the altar of sacrifice in the Mass. And we have to prepare ourselves for that sacrifice by purifying our interior life from any attachment to sin. And, and the way the Church has a way of validating that you've done that properly, and it's called the confessional. And so you have to put yourself under the authority of the church within the jurisdiction of the church 
to lawfully and safely participate in that sacrifice. Now, if you're not Catholic and you don't submit to the Church's authority or to the sacrament of confession or all the rest of it, Mm -hmm. and you present yourself for the Holy Communion, how can the Church possibly discern that you are properly disposed to receive communion? You might do yourself grave harm. St. Paul says you will do yourself grave harm if you go to communion when you're not properly disposed. Now, the Protestant doesn't believe in proper disposition. He thinks the only disposition is faith. And so my faith is valid. I can go to communion. But Jesus doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. If you go without charity and purification, you actually do yourself more harm than good. And we, we don't judge you if you're outside the church. It's only those inside the church that we judge. And because we judge those inside the church that we can judge them ready to go to Holy Communion. Aaron, we hope that's helpful for you and for your dad. Thanks so much for your call. In a moment, it's Michelle from Shelby, Ohio, Raphael in Orlando, also Kevin in Salem, Oregon, Zachary in Fremont, Nebraska. One line open at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, and that would be Wilmington Catholic Radio, celebrating their 19th year with us. They serve the greater Wilmington, North Carolina area with three radio stations. Congratulations to Bill Hamilton and his team there at Wilmington Catholic Radio from all of us here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Michelle, a first-time caller from Shelby, Ohio, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. Hey, uh, Michelle, what's on your mind today? Um, Hi, I just want to, before I start, thank you both for what you do. You've helped me tremendously understand my faith. Thank you. Um, I married married a non-Catholic 35 years ago, and he has since become Catholic, and we raised our children Catholic, but early in our marriage, his brother gave him a tape from his um, previous church, the Apostolic Christian Church, and it said that that, um, the Catholic Church, the devil is in the Catholic Church, and the devil is in the Pope. And I was just wondering if you could explain to me the difference of what you know of the Apostolic Christian Church between the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, thanks. So you could do an entire show on that. I mean, there's so many (laughs) profound differences. So the Apostolic Christian Church is a branch of Anabaptism. Uh, The Anabaptists were a movement that arose initially in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, Ulrich Zwingli was a Catholic priest who adopted Reformation theology. He read Luther and Uh, read Erasmus and studied philosophy and came to his own ideas that had a lot of resemblance to Luther, but he differed from Luther on some other points. And, um, uh, you know, Luther put a pretty high priority on the Bible. Zwingli took it a little bit further and really employed the idea that the Bible was a rule of faith for Christian life, practice, and worship, and so that you shouldn't do anything uh, in your Christian life that you can't find represented in the Bible. So Zwingli couldn't find things like church organs in the Bible, <laughs> so he took them out of his churches. He didn't find religious artwork in the New Testament, plenty of it in the Old Testament, he didn't find it in the New Testament, so he whitewashed his churches and took out all the imagery. Luther never did that, so it was going a little bit farther. Um, but in other respects, he was like Luther, and like all Christians for 1,500 years, Luther, uh, Zwingli practiced infant baptism. 
Um, and he was happy with a kind of um, a close relationship between the church and the state in Zurich. And in fact, the Reformation in Switzerland was largely state-run, uh, heavy uh, emphasis on state authority over the church in, in, um, in Switzerland. But there were some folks in his congregation that listened to Zwingli extolling the power and the authority of the Word of God, and they decided to take it even further than Zwingli. And so they claimed that they did not find infant baptism in the Bible. Uh, I do find it in the Bible, but they didn't think they found it in the Bible. And they also believed that there was a strict separation of church and state, um, so much so that they didn't think Christians could serve in the military or whole government office. Uh, and so they became a radical wing of the Reformation called Anabaptists, named for their practice of rebaptizing people. They didn't mm. think infant Baptists counted. You don't have believers' baptism. And uh, the the one thing mm. that everybody in the 16th century agreed on, whether you were Catholic or Protestant, was that the Anabaptists were bad, and they all persecuted them, right? And so the Anabaptists didn't really persecute other people, but they got persecuted by Catholics, and they got persecuted by mainline Protestants. Um, and uh, you know most of them today because <clears throat> you find them in the Mennonite tradition and the Amish tradition. That's where you would mostly find your... Mm. Your, um, your Anabaptists today, although they, they clearly influenced what would become the Baptist Church, the practice of believers' baptism, um, although Baptists differ from them in other respects. Uh, and the Apostolic Christian Church is a branch of, uh, of the Anabaptist tradition. Um, so, you know, some of the major differences we've already articulated would be their attitude toward the sacraments, especially baptism, their attitude towards the Christian involvement in the state, um, their, um, uh, of course, their radical doctrine of biblical authority, their view that the New Testament is the rule of faith and practice for the church, which I, as a Catholic, find an utterly unworkable hypothesis. I mean, the New Testament is so obviously not written like a manual, a user's manual on the Christian life, that the attempt to force it into that position leads, I, I personally believe, to a lot of difficulties in trying mm. to conduct yourself as a Christian. Um, so those are some of the major differences. But uh, like almost everybody in the 16th century, the, the world back then was really convulsed by tremendous social changes, and there was a strong temptation to read those changes through the apocalyptic texts of the New Testament, mm. especially the book of Revelation and Old Testament books like Daniel. So pretty much everybody at the time thought that the people that didn't mm. think like them were the Antichrist and the devil. So, you know, <laughs> Luther thought the Pope was the devil. Well, the Pope returned to the favor and thought Luther was the devil. You know, everybody <laughs> was the devil if you were on the wrong side of the debate back then. Yeah. Sounds strangely like listening to political debate today, even though we don't necessarily name somebody <laughs> as Satan or the, or the Antichrist, the idea that you demonize your opponent and oh, everything yeah. that they do is wrong and they're just vitiated with sin from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. There's a lot of that going around in the world today, you know, yep, yep. but that was common then as well. And so this idea that the Pope is the Antichrist or the Satan or whatnot uh, has been a, a prevalent part of all Protestant churches for 500 years. Michelle, is that helpful for you? Oh, yes. I mean, growing up Catholic, we were always taught that our Protestant brothers and sisters were brothers and sisters in Christ. And yeah. that was just a shocking statement to me, and I've just been kind of like in a whirlwind for the last 30 years because of it, and I just wanted to know what Dr. Anders had to say about it, and I really appreciate what he said. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I grew up in one of these churches that thought the Pope was the Antichrist, and in the original version of the Westminster Confession that we confessed, there it is in black and white. Pope's the Antichrist. That's what wow. they thought. That's how wow. we were brought up. Michelle, appreciate your call. Here is uh, Raphael, or Raphael in Orlando listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Raphael, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, thanks for taking my call, sir. Um, I am a cradle Catholic, 
And uh, the reason for my call is that I am troubled uh, by the actions of uh, Pope Francis. I, in this particular program where you're trying to discuss uh, the Catholic faith with people thinking about joining the, uh, the Catholic faith, I, um, I see uh, inconsistencies, uh, severe inconsistencies that I cannot understand. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, first one is uh, uh, the Pope, in the same way that he, he you know, he uh, issued uh, that Amoris Laetitia, and then several cardinals uh, requested to meet with him for a dubia, and they were rejected. They were he did not meet with them. Yet he met and sent uh, a letter of praise handwritten letter of praise to uh, James Martin, a, a priest who advocates against Catholic doctrine. Okay, I think right. we, yeah, I, I got the picture. I got the picture. So obviously, there, there, you're not the only person that that has a hard time uh, fitting Pope Francis into their conception of Catholic doctrine. So I will do my best to talk about the Pope and what I think he's about, and and the way a Catholic I think should respond to the Pope and what he says. So, um, first of all, I think it's plain, and this is obvious, that, that Francis's pastoral concerns are not principally with, not, I say principally, with making sure that, that the doctrinal uh, T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And he's, he's pretty clear about it. That's not, that, that, that's, that doesn't mean he wants to deny Catholic doctrine, but like there's a way, there's a thinking about pastoral ministry that says, well, the most important thing I can do is make sure everybody gets the doctrine right. And I think Francis has made it patently clear that that's not his number one uh, priority. Now, let me express some sympathy with that position, all right? Um, Before I was Catholic, I grew up in a tradition, a fundamentalist tradition, that was very keen on making sure that everyone thought exactly like we thought. Now, we were wrong in what we thought, (laughs) but we were really sure we were right, and we thought that the way to advance the cause of God in the world was to get everybody else to think like we do. And it took me into adulthood to realize that that made me, among other things, a really uninteresting dinner guest. You know, I mean, it, it really made me a kind of a social bore and a, and a bit of a jerk at times. And that uh, it made me personally view other people kind of the way a carnival barker would view a mark, you know, at Coney mm-hmm. Island or something. Like, sure. here's a sucker that I can manipulate into doing something that I want. And the, the worst example of this in my life was the time I met a young Catholic woman in a, uh, in a prep class for the GRE, and I found out she was Catholic. I was still Protestant at the time, uh-huh. and I pounced. And, I, and I, I was a pretty good student of the Bible. I was a seminary graduate, and I just kind of really wound her up and, uh, and manipulated her into making a Protestant act of faith. And in reflecting on that in years past, I realized I didn't really care about her as a person. Didn't really know who she was, didn't know anything about her family background mm-hmm. or what her genuine spiritual condition was. It was enough for me to put a label on her and call her Catholic and assume that the right thing for me to do was to proselytize her and get her to make a verbal confession of my faith without actually attending to her as a human being. And, uh, and I have witnessed this uh, same kind of attitude uh, among Catholics as well, who think that you know the important thing to do is uh, make sure this person signs on the dotted line— uh, never mind how I treat them as an individual. I mean, I, 
I, I could think of some pretty egregious examples, but I, I won't to for obvious reasons. I won't name sure. uh, specific individuals. Um, and um, and that I contrast that with the example of somebody like Mother Teresa. I remember reading a story about Mother Teresa one time when she was ministering to a dying Hindu woman whose son had abandoned her in the street. And the woman was filled with bitterness at her son for abandoning her. She was more concerned about that than she was about her really dire physical condition. And, uh, and Mother Teresa's objective in helping her was not to make her profess Catholicism, but to help her come to peace and to forgive her son. And she did. She succeeded, and the mm. woman died saying, I forgive my son, but she died a Hindu. And I read that story as a Protestant, and I thought, oh, what a terrible shame. You know, this, all this woman had to do was profess faith in Jesus, and who cares if she's mad at her son? She'll just go to heaven when she dies. Very different way of looking at what the spiritual good is. You know, is it is it about a verbal profession of faith, mm-hmm. or is it about a transformation of character that eventuates in, in charity <clears throat> and forgiveness? Sure. And ultimately, the point of Catholic doctrine, I think— and I think the Church teaches this, the doctrines are not ends in themselves. The point of doctrine is to bring us to virtue and charity. You know, so I think about the Trinity so that I can become like the Trinity. I think about the person of Christ so that I can become like the person of Christ in his charity and self-sacrifice and love for the poor. That's, that's the ultimate point of the thing. And the way I read Pope Francis, I believe that Francis uh, is frustrated at a style of Catholic life where what he would take to be a pedantic insistence on dotting the I's and crossing the T's has led to a diminishment of human concern. And if you read his, his pastoral theology and works like Evangelii Gaudium, for example, it's very clear his objective is that you should put mission and people above the maintenance of systems and institutions within the Church. And I, I think those are admirable priorities. Now, uh, I don't think it's any, it's any uh, secret that the Pope is not animated the way a professional theologian is animated. So Pope Benedict, for example, was a was a theologian the likes of which has never sat in the yeah. chair of Peter. Yeah. Um, dotting I's and crossing T's was very much his way, while not abandoning charity. Right. right? right. Same thing with John Paul II. I think that Francis has mm. a different pastoral style. Um, and uh, and that's hard to swallow if you're really heavily acclimated towards dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Now, um, you know, can, has Francis said things that have left theologians scratching their head? Yeah, to be sure he has, okay? So what do you do with that if you're, if you're a lay Catholic? Well, um, you, you have to look mm-hmm. at the context of the Pope's remarks, and the first thing you recognize is that Sometimes when he's spoken in an ambiguous way, uh, well, he's never done that when he's trying to define a Catholic dogma infallibly, right? And um, and uh, so I, I think that's what you do. I mean, popes popes are not—there's no guarantee that every pope will always be clear in everything that he says and prudent in everything that he does. Popes have often said things that were kind of wackadoodle, and they've done things that were— Far more wackadoodle, like you know, like <laughs> declaring war against Italian city states, for example. Yeah. And I'm under no obligation as a Catholic to think that every act of every pope is necessarily the right one in every circumstance. And in fact, the Church tells us in the Code of Canon Law that Catholics have an, a, a right and even sometimes a duty and obligation to say if we think that our ecclesiastical pastors, whether that's your parish priest, your bishop, or your pope, um, you know, is muddying the waters somehow. That's a that's that's a perfectly Catholic thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think 
uh, that frustration with his mode of speech should blind Catholics to what I think are genuine pastoral insights into the conduct of the Church that, that Catholics need to hear. And I, I personally have studied Pope Francis's writings quite a bit, and I've derived an awful lot of good out of them, like I, I hope I've conveyed. Well, there you go. Hey, Raphael, thank you so much for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for Holy Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel here on the EWTN campus. We bring it to you every morning, 8 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television, and then every two hours on EWTN Radio Essentials. A wonderful, wonderful thing for everybody. Here now, Zachary in Fremont, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Zachary, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, so my dad, he is a Catholic. My mom is not. And she was married once before and was divorced. And I was just kind of wondering why my dad was not able to take communion at the Catholic Church anymore. Sure, I appreciate the question. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to assume that when your father married your mother, that they did not get married in the Catholic Church. Would I be correct about that? I don't think so. You you, you think they did not? Did not. Okay, all right, so that that's problem number one. So um, the, the, the law in the Catholic Church is that if you are a Catholic— you are obligated to marry in the Catholic Church unless you get unless you get a dispensation, unless you get specific permission otherwise. And you, you can get such permission, but practically nobody does. Like, if they don't want to get married in the Catholic Church, they just run off and get married at the Methodist Church without asking. And, and um, you know, it's, it would be kind of like, I mean, this is a legal distinction— but it would be, I mean, I'm just trying to make this up off the top of my head. It'd be like if I go to the DMV in Alabama and I say I want to get my driver's license and then I, I don't sign the document. <laughs> like it's not, it hasn't been, it's not legal yet. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you got to follow the procedure. And there are, there are good theological reasons. It's not just arbitrary. Uh, there are good theological reasons why the church says Catholics should be married in the Catholic Church, but they do allow exceptions. And if you don't do that, then you haven't done what you legally need to do to be considered married as a Catholic. Now, why did he marry outside the church? Again, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to assume that it was because your mom had been married previously and that she did not seek or want to seek an annulment. Now, let me explain that, okay? In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 19, uh, Jesus teaches that marriage is indissoluble forever until you die, no exceptions. <clears throat> if you marry somebody and you're truly validly married— you are married to that person until you die, no matter what. No matter what kind of person they are, whether they're a good person, a bad person, you know, whatever. You're, j you're married, you're stuck, you're done, that's it. One marriage until you die, and then you can remarry, but the first person's got to die. Um, and so the presumption is, if someone says, I'm married, the Catholic Church says, okay, we take you at your word, you got married, so unless we have some reason to think otherwise, we're going to assume you're actually married, and marriage means for life. Mm -hmm. So if you leave your spouse and get with somebody else— you know, barring a few exceptions, the presumption is, hey, you can't do that. You can't do that. Now, there's a way around this, and here's the way around it. The way around is, let's say um, you are an 18-year-old with a brain full of mush, uh, and you, you know, you go to the courthouse and you get married, and you make all kinds of vows and promises, and you absolutely do not have the mental, psychological, or moral competence to do that, Right? 
Um, I mean, it's like imagine if my my five year old tried to, you know, sign a contract to purchase a Mitsubishi dealership. You know, I mean, like it's not a court in history that would hold that up. You no, know, I mean, no. it's like no, you're just not competent to do that. And uh, and so for that and many other reasons, you can appeal the validity of your marriage to the church. And the church can say, okay, we'll, we'll look into the thing. And they look into the marriage and they go, you know what? You, you really weren't competent to do that at that time. So you weren't really married. And when the church declares you weren't really married, that's called getting an annulment or having a declaration of nullity. And so generally, when a Catholic wants to marry a divorced person, the procedure would be that the divorced person, in this case, your mom, would apply to the church for a declaration of nullity. Say, please, you know, rule on whether or not my first marriage was valid. Usually those are granted, okay? Um, And then you could legally marry that person, which you ought to do in the Catholic Church. Now, your father probably didn't do any of those things, and so the church says, well, you know, we, we don't regard that marriage as a valid marriage right now, and so if you're not validly married, you can't cohabitate with somebody you're not validly married to. Mm. Now, there's a fix for it. I don't know if your father's still alive, um, but if he is, like, you can always go back after the fact and solve these problems. You can get the annulment. You can you can get married in the church. You can solve the problem. He can be reconciled to the church, right? Uh, there's another, like, let's say he's in danger of death. He's at the end of his life, and there's just no time mm-hmm. to do all that. Mm-hmm. Well, he could also say, okay, well, I'm going to live as brother and sister with this woman. Like, we're not going to cohabitate, and I'll just go to confession, and yeah. I can be reconciled that way before I die. Uh, so there are a lot of ways that your father's situation could be easily rectified, but probably either he was badly instructed or he just didn't want to bother. Zachary, thanks so much for your call today. Let's go to Ander Andrew in a beautiful part of the U.S., northern Utah, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Andrew, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. I uh, just came to realize that uh, in the Catholic Church, there's a belief that, that uh, Mary remained a virgin, despite scriptures about Christ's siblings. Uh, my question is, where does that come from, and how is it important that... Uh, she is. Okay, thanks. I appreciate it. So I'd like to point out to beginning at the beginning that no, there is no scripture verse that says that Mary had any children other than Jesus. There's not one single verse in all the Bible that ascribes multiple children to Mary. There are scripture verses like Matthew 13, for example, that say that Jesus had brothers and sisters, but when you when you do the legwork, you look at Matthew 13, Matthew um, what 27, John chapter 19, you, 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 you line up the text side by side and you find out who these people were, we know who the brothers and sisters of Jesus were. They were the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, a cousin of the Blessed Virgin. So they were, in fact, Jesus's extended family, not his biological siblings. And that, that's all plain from the Bible, right? So there's no scripture verse that says that Mary had other children, not, not one single verse that, that suggests that. Um, and uh, it, so widespread and ubiquitous is belief in Mary's perpetual virginity. It's not just a Catholic thing. That early Protestant theologians, even deeply, deeply anti-Catholic Protestant theologians, and I'm thinking here particularly of Francis Turretin, who was a 17th century Calvinist, Reformed theologian. He was the successor to Calvin and Theodore Beza in the Church of Geneva. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who disliked Catholicism more than Francis Turretin, who famously defended the perpetual virginity of Mary on the strength of sacred tradition, on the grounds that it is really unwise to deny something 
that all of Christian antiquity affirmed, okay? Um, and the question then is why? Why did Christian antiquity feel so strongly about the perpetual virginity of Mary? So uh, you know that Jesus, when asked by the, Fer- the Sadducees, excuse me, if there would be marriage in heaven, says that in, in heaven we don't marry and we're not given in marriage, right? So that's not the way that we roll in heaven. The, the eschatological life, the life of the future, the life of glory will be one without sexual reproduction. And uh, in anticipation of that, the most heavenly form of life on this earth is the one lived by our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, who was a celibate, right? Christ says, I come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, St. Paul uh, connects that idea specifically to celibacy. He says the celibate man is able to give himself entirely to the work of the Lord. The married man has to worry about the affairs of his wife. It's better to be like I am and utterly committed to God. Um, And so in imitation of Christ, in imitation of St. Paul, in imitation of the life of heaven in the more perfect way, um, uh, Jesus himself says some people have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 19. Um, It's always been understood in the church that not everybody, but some people are called to the celibate life as a more perfect form of consecration. Doesn't mean that simply being celibate will get you to heaven, but it does mean it's a form of life in which if you take advantage of it, you have more opportunity to to sacrifice yourself more thoroughly, more completely to the service of God and neighbor. Right. So, uh, the Mary in Christian theology and in Scripture is the most perfect Christian disciple. She is the mother of all those who believe in Jesus. That's what Revelation chapter twelve says. And uh, Jesus himself seems to identify her with the woman of Genesis 3.15, whose son will crush the head of the serpent, an eschatological and archetypal figure, a real a symbol of Christian identity and of the church. So it's fitting that in her we would see exemplified this most perfect form of, of Christian consecration. But she also has the dignity of being the mother of God. So she's both a mother and a virgin, and as such is iconic in a in a deeply mystical way. She can, be, she can be an icon of holiness both for the celibate uh, and for the married. Uh, and her own response to Gabriel at the Annunciation is highly suggestive when he says, you are going to give birth to a son, you who are in betrothed to be married to Joseph. And she scratches her head and says, how can this be? Yeah. Now, Mary knew the birds and the bees. She knew where babies came from, and she knew she was getting married. Her, her befuddlement at the angel's prophecy uh, was something that many of the fathers of the church pointed to as a sort of secondary evidence for this vow of perpetual virginity on her part. Appreciate your call there, Andrew. Glad we could get you in uh, from northern Kentucky. Could not get to a call from Judy on Facebook. Judy, we're going to try to hold your question over till tomorrow's program. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Hey, thanks, Tom. Be sure and check us out tomorrow or any day, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. On behalf of our great team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Hope to see you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.